you have your Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. If you are new to Redeemer, we're making our way through the book of Revelation, and we are almost done. And all of God's people said, Amen. We're in this final section of the book, and we're getting more about Babylon's fall. And if I'm right, following others, Babylon is the world system headed by Satan that leaves God out. This idea started way back in Genesis chapter 11, there at Babel when the people came together to build a tower to their own glory, to their own fame, seeking to leave God out. And then, of course, later in biblical history, Babylon was a world power that was evil and did not submit itself to God and oppressed God's people and sought to destroy God's people, in fact, came into Israel to the southern kingdom of Judah, defeated them, destroyed the temple, and sent the people into exile. It's picked up by later authors, in particular John, and seems now in the book of Revelation, this Babylon to be symbolic of the world system, the powers that be, the invisible powers, working through Seemingly human governments and institutions and the people that lead them and are a part of them to woo people and draw people away from devotion to God to whom alone their devotion is due and to give themselves to the world. And praise God, we have found in the book of Revelation in chapter 14, in chapter 16, last week in chapter 17, and now in chapter 18, that Babylon is due to fall. Just to remind us in 14.8, another angel, a second one followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. In chapter 16, the seventh bowl that is poured out at the coming of Jesus. The great city, Babylon, was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And then last week in chapter 17, a closer look, if you will, at, the, at Babylon the great that is to be destroyed. And you'll see it again now in chapter 18, verse 3, or 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Here's how we're going to go about it. If I understand chapter 18, the first paragraph, verses 1 to 3, and the, and the last paragraph, verses 21 to 24, form, the fancy word for it is an inclusio. It holds together on the front and on the back. In the front, we're going to see that this perennial enemy of God's people will meet 
a dismal, deserved end. And at the latter part of the chapter, we will see that this perennial enemy of God's people will meet a dramatic, deserved end. Let's look at those first before we look at the middle section. Verse 1. This perennial, persistent, enduring enemy of God's people will meet a dismal, deserved end. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Again, hinted at, described, gone into more detail, and here it is said again that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, this world system headed by Satan that leaves God out is going to come to an end. And it will be dismal. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. You don't have to go there, but just listen to a few of these verses from Isaiah. This is the prophet Isaiah talking about Babylon in the Old Testament, the real city of Babylon that Babylon was going to be destroyed by the Medo-Persian Empire. And here's how it's described in Isaiah 13. But desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches also will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. Hyenas will howl in the fortified towers, and jackals in their luxurious palaces." Her fateful time also will soon come, and her days will not be prolonged. The Medo-Persians will come, destroy Babylon. The people will be destroyed, and wild animals will come in. In chapter 34, verses 11 to 15, speaking about Babylon's fall, but pelican and hedgehog will possess it. Owl and raven will dwell in it. And God will stretch over at the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there whom they may proclaim king. And all its princes will be nothing. Thorns will come up in its fortified towers, nettles and thistles in its fortified cities. It will also be a haunt of jackals and an abode of ostriches. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves. The hairy goat also will cry to its kind. Yes, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there, and it will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, the hawks will be gathered there, every one of its kind. I could also read from Jeremiah chapter 15. Buse Fanning says this, According to the Old Testament imagery, when a city is completely destroyed, it is no longer suitable for human habitation but will become a haunt for savage creatures and possibly evil spirits. So Babylon is seen as a dwelling place of demons and a haven for every kind of unclean spirit, unclean bird, an unclean and detestable beast. These creatures typify a great city laid 
waste. Babylon is going to fall. It will be dismal and it will be deserved. Verse 3, for, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. This world system headed by Satan that leaves God out has led so many astray. Not to worship God, but to worship the world and all the trinkets and baubles that it has to offer. So it will be dismal, it will be deserved. In verses 21 and following, it will be dramatic. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. This is taken from Jeremiah 51, verse 62. Again, talking about literal Babylon of Old Testament days. You, O Lord, have promised concerning this place to cut it off so that there will be nothing dwelling in it, whether man or beast, but it will be a perpetual desolation. And as soon as you finished reading this scroll, you will tie a stone to it and throw it into the middle of the Euphrates River and say, just so shall Babylon sink down and not rise again because of the calamity that I'm going to bring upon her, and they will become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. John is picking up on this language of the Old Testament about the fall of the city of Babylon, the nation of Babylon, to the Medo-Persian Empire. And now in this symbolic language of the world system headed by Satan that has been a perpetual pain to the people of God, that it is going to fall. Took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And look at all the things that are pointed out that, that won't be around. These specific areas of everyday life, some of them beautiful, some of them more mundane, but they will be gone forever. You saw it at the, at the end of verse 21, will not be found any longer. We'll see it again and again. The sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of the lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. It's a dramatic scene as if Babylon has had a stone tied around its neck and thrown into the sea. And none of these things will be around any longer. And again, it is deserved. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. 
She's coming down when Christ comes again. The world will be no longer. Now, that was the beginning, and, and, and that was the end. And in between now, we get verses 4 to 20. And if I read it right, verse 4 and verse 20 form an inclusio. At the beginning in verse 4, come out of her. And at the end, verse 20, rejoice over her. And in between these responses from the unbelieving world. So if the perennial enemy of God's people, the world, Babylon, is going to come to an end, dismal, dramatic, deserved end, how should God's people respond? Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give, her, give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her, to the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensually, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I will not be a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. She's coming down, people of God. So come out of her. seems to be a call to you and to me to reject the spiritual and moral values of the surrounding culture. We're not to withdraw physically or geographically from life here in Cinco, Katy, Houston, or the like. But we are to follow different moral and spiritual convictions in our everyday lives. We're to separate from the world and live for God as his people on the way to the land of promise. Maybe this is part of John's way to say what he recorded in John 17 when Jesus prayed for us, talking about us being what? In the world, but not of it. Jesus did not pray that God the Father would take us out of the world. We're going to be in it. We're actually sent to it, to be in it, just as he was sent to be in it. But as we are sent in the world, we're not to walk in step with the world. We must be set apart from it by God's truth. And be careful of the complacency and the assimilation into the world that can be so 
easy for us. I know it's easy for me. Right? We mentioned this last week that, that in the walk with faithfulness to Jesus Christ, we have three obstacles that we have to continually battle against, right? Our own flesh. Our great enemy, Satan, and the world. It's a constant battle. The world woos us and seduces us and tempts us and says, come on over here, life is great. Come on over here, God's word is not true. Come on over here, God is not good. I am true, and I am good, and I will meet your deepest desires. Right away. We need to watch out for it, right? One of the scariest verses in all the Bible to me is in 2 Timothy 4, where Paul is talking about Demas. He had mentioned Demas before in Colossians chapter 4 as as a good and faithful man. But he says of Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Demas was faithful to Jesus and faithful to the gospel work and faithful to gospel people like Paul. But then the world, the love of the world, drew his heart away. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins. Let's quickly look at the response of those who are not God's people, but those who have given themselves to the world. They have not devoted themselves to God, but but have been wooed away from devotion to him to give themselves, last week, to the harlot. Verse 9, The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensually with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. We're going to see that same language again and again these kings of the earth, these elites of the earth who did not want to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, but rather to the world, where they got all of their power and all of their possessions and all of their pleasures. At the coming of Christ, it's going to come down, and they are, in this imagery, they're going to weep and lament and proclaim woes over her because The one to whom they gave their life is no more. And of course, they will experience God's judgment as well. Verse 11, it's not just the kings. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. 
cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and, and purple and silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made of very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. Whew. The fruit you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city. She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls for in one hour. Such great wealth has been laid waste. Remember when Jesus talked about the seed that goes out and some of it comes up, but then it gets choked out by what? The deceitfulness of riches. These merchants had set their sights not on the glory of God and the stuff of heaven, but on their own glory and the stuff of earth. A love of money, Paul said, is the root of all sorts of evil. And many longing for it have caused themselves great pain. The kings of the earth who would not bow to Christ but gave themselves to the world. The merchants of the earth who would not bow to Christ but gave themselves to the world. He goes on, verse 17, and every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Up in verse 8, for this reason, in one day, her plagues will come. But then three times over, in verse 10, for in one hour, your judgment has come. In verse 17, for in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. And in verse 19, for in one hour, she has been laid waste. When Christ comes again, it will be gone. So come out of her, my people, in verse 4, and now in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, 
because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. There certainly seems to be the idea that when this day comes, that God's people are called to rejoice because he has vindicated his people who have suffered. Because of their faithfulness to Jesus, they have suffered for it. And now their day has come and they are called upon to rejoice that they have been vindicated. God has pronounced judgment for you against her. But I wonder also if the rejoicing that we're not exactly sure. It's probably the same angel there in verse 4. I heard an, or another voice, this voice from verse 4. I think this voice picks up in verse 20. That at the fall of Babylon, at the second coming of Jesus, we are called upon to rejoice. I wonder if it's not something like this. That this perennial enemy that has attracted us and charmed us and enticed us and tempted us often so very successfully that has stuck its claws into us and pulled and yanked and tugged that has warred against us that has continually presented to you and to me a spiritual danger that we needed to watch out for and war against and fight against, it will finally be over. This fight, I'll go ahead and say all three, against the world, the flesh, and the devil will finally be over. Yay! Rejoice! Rejoice because she is fallen. The world is alluring, and tempting, and charming, and attracting, attractive. And you and I are called to come out from her at all times. We are meant to resist her and to stay devoted to Jesus Christ and to his ways, but that's not easy. Can I hear an amen? Andrew Peterson, he did an album of songs on the book of Revelation. One is called Rise Up. Here's one little phrase. think he's coming from Revelation 18 here. And every sad seduction and every clever lie and every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. And we will rise up in the end. every sad seduction. You ever been seduced by the world?
every clever lie. You ever been lied to by the world? Every word that, that woos. You ever been wooed by the world? Come on over here. Come on, it's, it's better over here. It's more satisfying over here. It's more pleasurable over here. It's funner over here. It's more exciting over here. There's life over here. Indeed, has God said? He's just a killjoy. This is where you'll find life. This is where you'll find excitement. This is where you'll be satisfied. This is where you'll be significant. Is over here. Every sad seduction, every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love, will break them by and by. This day is coming, and when it does, we can rejoice. Until then, though, we still fight. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was talking about the, the end of life, that when you and I come to the end of our life and, and, and death is just before us. But I think what he says applies even here. He said this, The trumpet still plays the notes of war. You cannot sit down and put the victory wreath on your head. You do not have a crown. You must still wear the helmet and carry the sword. You must watch, pray, and fight. Expect your last battle to be the most difficult, for the enemy's fiercest charge is reserved for the end of the day. We're still at war. We can't put our crown on yet. We've still got to take the helmet and the sword. Watch pray, and fight. May God help us. I'll give you five areas of life just for you to think about, for me to think about, and wonder about the, the world against which we fight. These five areas of your life just to wonder are there places that I need to go before the Lord to confess sin and to repent from sin and, and to move towards trusting Him and obeying Him? Like a good preacher, they all start with the letter M so that you can keep up with them. The first I'm going to call mornings. Not that you have to have your time with God in the morning, but it starts with the letter M. All right? What sets the tone for your day? For your life? Is it time with God in His Word and in prayer? Or is it the multitude of voices from the world. To get a little cute with it, is it ESPN or ACTS? If you're, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. 
When you wake up in the morning, what's the, what's the first thing on your heart and mind? Is it the market or is it Matthew? Is it the paper or Proverbs? Is it Instagram or Isaiah? Is it scrolling or is it Scripture? What are your mornings like? What are your days like? Where, what sets the tone for you and for me on a, on a daily basis? It's one to think about. How about, number two, your mouth? Ugh. This may be the best, best verse just to set up the contrast. Paul in Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. How's your mouth, the words that you speak, doing? Does the world have its fangs in your tongue? Or is it submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and seeking to honor him? The sins of the tongue are many, right? Boasting about self, belittling others, telling lies, cursing, gossiping, slandering and on and on and on, but our tongues can also be used to encourage and uplift and give life and to edify. How are you doing with your words that come out of your mouth? Third would be morals. Speaks to many areas of life, but when it, maybe at the core of it, speaks to what is right and what is wrong. And of course, that is to be determined for us by the Word of God. Certainly speaks to the words that we speak, but also our work ethic, our respect for others, our willingness to forgive, our willingness to admit fault, to be kind, to express gratitude, not to cheat in school or at work, to take responsibility for our actions. your mornings, your mouth, your morals, your money. It's a huge part of our lives. Maybe some questions. What is your perspective on it? It Speaks also to the manner in which you and I acquire it. Do we see ourselves as the owners of our money or stewards of the money that God has entrusted to us? Do we give to the Lord's work? Are we generous to others and the like? I quoted it earlier, but 1 Timothy 6, 8. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money is such a powerful thing in our lives, but we got to be careful. 
mornings, mouth, morals, money, marriage. Husbands, how are you doing? Wives, how are you doing? Husbands, is your marriage reflective of the biblical teaching on what it means to be a husband to a wife? And what God calls you and me to be towards her? Wives, is the way that you relate to your husband shaped by the scriptures or the thousand voices of the world. It's a fight. Not just in these five areas of life, but in all the areas of our lives. But praise God that he is here to help us. One way that he helps us is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died upon a cross to pay the penalty for all of our worldliness. All the times that we have been tempted and attracted and allured and seduced and whatever we might say by the world and our devotion to Christ has waned and we have given ourselves In devotion to the world, Jesus Christ has paid for it. Amen and amen. All of our sins, those of us who are united to Jesus Christ by repentance and faith, all of our sins have been washed away. And he has given us his Holy Spirit, empowering us, helping us, encouraging us. To trust and obey him. To lead us to confession of our sins and repentance from our sins and to turn and to trust in him and to increasingly obey him. We are not left on our own to come out from her The very presence of God through his spirit abides with us to help us while the fight still rages. One day, one day we will rejoice that this fight will be over. Let's pray. Lord, a lot of dramatic language in 18 about the fall of Babylon, the world. Lots of weeping and wailing, lamenting, woe, woe from unbelievers. But there are those words for us. Come out from her. Live distinct.
from the world. You are my people, called by my name, forgiven of all of your sins and empowered by my spirit. Live differently. Lives of love and joy, peace and patience, and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, so different from the world. Start your day with me or find time every day to hear from me. And watch over our mouths in the way that we speak to one another. And our morals and our money and our marriages. Be distinct. You are mine. Be careful. Lord, we need your help. Help us remember to keep our helmet on, our sword at the ready because the fight still wages. We pray that you would help us to persevere and endure and keep getting up in this fight of faith. And we look forward to the day when Christ shall come again and this enemy will be no more. The king of love will break it by and by. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.